You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 62, by Rudolf Steiner, 14 Lectures, uh, entitled Results of Spiritual Research, translated by Simon Blacksland de Lange. This is Lecture 1, given in Berlin on the 31st of October, 1912, and it is entitled, How is Spiritual Science Refuted? As in previous winters, it has been made possible for me to give a number of lectures about spiritual science here at this place in the course of the winter season. It will be apparent from the program that the initial purpose of these lectures is to encompass what spiritual science has to say from its standpoint about the question of life, that the transition will then be made to shedding light on some important cultural phenomena and issues and on outstanding figures, such as Raphael and Leonardo da Vinci, and that finally something will be said regarding the relationship of spiritual science to a number of matters concerning the intellectual life of our present times. These lectures will be inaugurated today in a quite distinctive way. The intention is to present at the outset not what can be said by way of consolidating and strengthening this spiritual research, but on the contrary, what possible objections of a more significant nature can be brought to bear against it. It lies in the nature of things that because of circumstances peculiar to our present times, and because of several other factors, this spiritual research attracts much hostility. But nothing would be more inappropriate to this spiritual research than if it were to succumb to fanaticism, and so to speak only wanted to see what can be adduced on its behalf from the standpoint of its representatives. Fanaticism must, and we shall see the reasons why this is said, lie far removed from this spiritual research. Therefore it must, more than is perhaps necessary in any other case, give thought to understanding the objections of its opponents, and indeed it must tolerate them up to a certain point. And it must come to understand that a whole number of thoroughly worthy present-day seekers after truth are not able to ally themselves with it. It has been my custom, those who have attended previous lectures will know this, and this custom will be continued in subsequent ones, at the same time to consider possible objections to any statements that I may make. I shall today anticipate some of the more significant and weighty objections. For objections against what can be said from the standpoint of spiritual research indeed emerge not merely from opponents, but in any conscientiously undertaken spiritual research a person who has engaged in such an endeavor himself feels that at every moment he is presented with these possible objections. Moreover, because the truths of spiritual research must be attained and struggled for within the soul, there is a sense in which one has also developed a counterweight to such objections as may have occurred to one, and there are distinct advantages in being clear in advance 
about anything that may be open to objection. I do not consider it to be my task to enter here into those objections or alleged criticisms that can, so to speak, be found on the street or are the product of sheer fantasy, but rather to take account of the objections which anyone in our time who is sincerely seeking truth can himself make out of the spiritual foundations of our present age, and even to a certain extent must make. I shall also not concern myself with much that is often referred to today as spiritual research or theosophy, for it has to be admitted from the outset that what appears today as theosophy is not really something to celebrate. However, what has been and will be presented here shall indeed be taken into account in the objections that I shall consider today. But if we are wanting to involve ourselves in such objections, much of what has been said in the course of the previous cycles and will come to expression in the coming lectures will need to be drawn upon at least in outline. We shall therefore briefly call to mind what is meant here by spiritual research as regards its content and its sources. To begin with, spiritual science can in general be characterized by saying that it is based upon the standpoint that it must reach beyond everything that a person may perceive through his senses and is able to discover by means of a science that is founded primarily upon the senses and on a reasoning power that draws its conclusions from the senses. Two, the spiritual causes of what can be apprehended by the senses and investigated by the intellect, so that everywhere behind these sense-perceptible phenomena it does not only acknowledge but endeavors to prove the existence of a spiritual world in which there reside the causes of everything that the senses can perceive and the intellect can study. This spiritual science can be distinguished from many other spiritual disciplines of both past and present through the fact that it does not merely seek to assert in a general hypothetical way that there is a spiritual world beyond the senses and the ordinary faculties of understanding, but proceeds on the basis that man is capable of developing his cognitive powers and soul forces in such a way that they can gain insight into a spiritual world, which they could not achieve without this development. Hence, not only the possibility of a spiritual world, but the knowledgeability of such a world is the distinctive quality of this spiritual research, or anthroposophy, if that is what we wish to call it. That with the particular nature of the soul forces and cognitive powers that people ordinarily possess, if we may put it thus, it would not be possible to penetrate into the spiritual world is something that can be acknowledged from the start. But to claim that these cognitive powers cannot be developed in such a way that once they had been raised to this higher standpoint, they would be just as capable of perceiving the spiritual world as eyes are in perceiving the world of the senses, is disputed by spiritual science. With this we have already arrived at the sources of this spiritual research. These sources become available to the soul when through inner work, through inner development, and I have often spoken here about the methods of this inner development, it raises itself to a higher vantage point as regards its perception. 
then in apposition to the sense world that surrounds us, spiritual science makes manifest another spiritual world, from whence the true causes of all sensory phenomena originate. By investigating the spiritual world, we come to regard man as a far more complicated being than he is for ordinary sensory or narrowly intellectual perception. We come to see man as a four-membered being. That which one calls the physical body is regarded by spiritual research only as part of the whole of man's being. The ordinary life of the senses can observe this physical body. The reasoning faculties can understand it. This sensory body is the object of ordinary science. For a large part of our modern experience, the physical body is the totality of man's being. For spiritual scientific research, it is only one part out of four members of this human nature. In addition to this physical body, spiritual research distinguishes the so-called etheric body or life body, which is incorporated in the physical body. But it does not speak of this etheric body or life body as though it were accessible only to the intellect, but in such a way that the developed soul forces are capable of beholding it, just as a developed eye, EYE, can perceive the colors blue or red, whereas a colorblind eye is unable to perceive these colors. And it then speaks of the necessary conclusion that occurs, namely that the physical body naturally disintegrates with death through the forces that are specific to it. Because the forces that belong to the physical body bring about its decomposition, its disintegration, and are only held together because during the time of life between birth and death, the etheric body or life body, which fights continuously against the disintegration of the physical body, is incorporated in it. Only when the separation from the etheric body occurs with the moment of death, does the physical body proceed in accordance with its own forces, which then, because they work in their particular fashion, bring about its decomposition. Man has his physical body in common with the whole mineral, lifeless world. He has his etheric body in association with all living things, with the whole of the plant world. However, spiritual science does not stop there it recognizes a third member of human nature which is as independent as the physical body. We do not need to stumble over particular terms. They will be explained and have already been partially explained. It is the astral body that is distinguished as the third member. This is the real bearer of passions, desires, impulses, emotions, hence of everything that we call our soul body, which unfolds its activity in our inner being. And in spiritual research, we again distinguish from this astral body the actual bearer of the ego. Whereas man has the astral body in common with everything that can develop emotions and passions and an inner life of ideas, as exists, for example, in the animal world, he has the fourth member of his being, the bearer of the ego, as the crown of his personal nature in his own right. For spiritual research, man's being consists initially of the physical body, the etheric body, the astral body, 
and the bearer of the ego. It further transpires for anyone who is able to gain insight into the spiritual world that a large part of the life's circumstances to which we are subjected is distinguished from ordinary life, namely the time that we spend asleep. Sleep is distinguished for the spirit researcher from waking life in that when someone is asleep, the bearer of his ego and his astral body are separated from his etheric body and physical body. The two latter members remain in bed as a plant-like form, while the bearer of the ego together with the astral body, its emotions, impulses, capacities for forming ideas and so forth, withdraw from the physical and etheric bodies during sleep and then develop a life of their own in a self-subsisting spiritual world. For a normal person today, however, ordinary life is impossible when the ego and astral body are thus in a withdrawn state during sleep. Because they have no organs with which to perceive their surroundings, they do not have eyes and ears as does the physical body. Thus it is impossible that the astral body and ego perceive the world in which they find themselves. The higher development of the soul consists precisely in that the astral body and ego become capable of developing organs in order to perceive their environment, and that a state can thereby arise for the spirit researcher in which he perceives the spiritual world. Thus, in addition to the waking state and the state of sleep, he also has a waking state of sleep, if we may refer to it in this way, which is that condition whereby the spirit researcher can perceive the spiritual world to which man owes his true origin. Thus spiritual science tries to explain from spiritual facts the transition that a person makes every 24 hours between waking and sleeping. A further aspect of spiritual science is that it approaches the great riddle of death and life. That is, in other words, the question that so stirs the human heart the question of man's immortality. Spiritual science comes to the realization that man's true spiritual being is not merely a result of his physical organization, but an independent entity and essence belonging to a spiritual world which builds up the physical body, which exists before birth, indeed before conception, and from the first moment that a human individual enters into existence as a germinal cell, works as an upbuilding force upon his organism. This is, in other words, the soul spiritual essence, the truly active and upbuilding force that brings to a person an organizing principle for his entire life, that bears only the fruits of his life's experiences through the gate of death, and makes with death the transition to a spiritual world, in order then to have further experiences, and which then organizes a new physical body for a further life, in order to undergo a new life and to repeat the cycle. Spiritual science speaks, in other words, of repeated earth lives. It speaks of repeated earthly lives in such a way that we look back from our present embodiment within sensory existence to other incarnations in the past, but also look into the future to subsequent incarnations of our essential being, 
Thus we divide the entirety of human life into a life between birth and death and another life, which for the senses and the ordinary reasoning powers takes its course purely spiritually between death and the next birth. But spiritual science conceives of this not in an eternally recurring way, but such that it recognizes these repeated earthly lives to be only intermediate states, whereas the entirety of human life goes back to a primordial spiritual source which preceded all life, the whole of planetary existence, so that earthly lives had their beginning in a condition where man emerged from a purely spiritual existence, and that once the necessary conditions have been fulfilled, he will enter again into purely spiritual states, which will include the fruits of everything that he has undergone through a succession of earthly lives. This is, to be sure, only an outline, which will be filled out in the coming lectures with distinctive colors, but which is able to show the kind of results that spiritual scientific research can obtain. If we place this whole tableau before our minds, we must indeed say that such a picture will, to a large number of those who reckon to be able to think today, not merely be incomprehensible and incapable of proof, but even something that can call forth irony, scorn, and derision. Already, when there is any reference to spiritual science, anyone who wants to relate everything that is of importance to him today to the sure foundation of science must say to himself, what is the significance to such research of not only all the various achievements of science but also its methods? Of what significance to spiritual science are the seriousness, the worthiness, the exactitude and also the great efforts that science has made in recent centuries and decades in order to arrive at an objective certainty. Spiritual science does not, of course, want to work against science. This has frequently been emphasized. But to be fully in harmony with it. It must, therefore, be conscious of the objections that science has against it, not only with respect to its content, but also bearing in mind especially the seriousness and achievements of science in recent centuries. It would be true to say that according to spiritual science, these sources of spiritual research lie in a certain development of the soul, in that the soul engages in certain inner processes of ideation, feeling, and will, which one may call meditation, so that it has, as a result, inner experiences that are naturally limited purely to one's own soul, and that no one can verify other than the person who experiences them. And then, something of this unverifiable nature is presented as a scientific statement regarding the spiritual worlds. What, science can say, then remains of what is the most wonderful achievement of this science? that through all the research of recent centuries, only that which can be verified everywhere and at any time by every human being objectively has validity. Outward experiments, outward observations have the distinctive quality that anyone can directly relate to them. This is not so with what is sought and struggled for in one's inner being. 
If one looks at people who have an inner experience of such things, does not the whole uncertain nature of the contradictory things they say in all their great variety show how little the experiences that a mystically intensified consciousness is able to bestow accord with one another? Surely we must harmonize the research that various individuals are undertaking in the clinic, in the laboratory, or somewhere similar. The response will be that this could not be done any differently, so that what someone experiences subjectively shows itself to be unscientific through the fact that it cannot be verified by another person since this other person cannot look into the soul of the spirit researcher concerned. Do not these experiences of the soul have, one might say, a total similarity with everything that is very evidently experienced in the soul as a result of illness, overexertion, and ecstasy? If the spirit researcher protests that he has absolutely no intention of allowing any arbitrary vision that appears before his soul to count as the result of his research, and that he proceeds in accordance with specific methods, someone can nevertheless still object. And this objection appears thoroughly justified. Yes, is it not so that whenever people experience visions, hallucinations, and so forth, and have the kind of soul state that makes this possible, they develop a much greater belief in their fixed ideas, in their hallucinations and visions, than in what their senses persuade them to think. If one looks at a dreamer who is rigid and unbending in his beliefs, one will have cause to be concerned about what the spirit researcher wants to draw forth from the depths of his soul as something that is not an illusion, that has objective existence in the spiritual world. Someone might say that it is possible for it to have objective existence in the spiritual world, but against the validity of such a soul experiment, it must be said that the dreamer has just as much confidence in his illusory ideas as the spirit researcher in the results of his research, which he owes to what comes forth from the depths of his soul. Only someone who has not followed the development of the objective research of what may be said to be the soundly based science of the last few centuries and decades can pass over such an objection with a smile. It is weightier than one ordinarily thinks for those who approach their spiritual scientific results from a one-sided direction. It must be said, for example, with regard to what is said in my book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, where particular instructions are given for the individual soul, that when the soul is completely involved with such an experience, it has no means of keeping itself in check. All this testifies to the fact that one must take very seriously such an objection, which to a superficial spirit researcher may even appear trivial. There is so much that can be said about the nature of what could be described as erroneous ideas, which could also be used against spiritual science, in that people say, everything that you present as methods for developing the soul 
maybe nothing other than a refined capacity for having illusions and hallucinations. Then spiritual science appears particularly out of place with respect to serious, verifiable science when it refers to specific, isolated results. A conscientious seeker after truth of the present who is familiar with developments of recent years might say, Do you not know anything about everything that happened before? You speak of an etheric body or life body that is supposed to have an existence independent from the physical body. Do you know nothing about what used to be called a life force that lurked in people's minds until the 19th century? And that the belief in this life force has finally been disposed of through devoted scientific efforts? And are you ignorant of the following fact? It used to be said in earlier centuries that a chemical process occurred in lifeless nature between separate chemical substances. But when, so it was claimed, this same connection between substances enters the human organism, the so-called life force takes hold of it. Then the process that takes place among the individual substances would not be what we learn in chemistry and physics. But these various substances work upon one another under the influence of the life force. It was a great step forward that this life force has been swept overboard, that people sought to say that this life force is of no help whatsoever and that one's endeavor must be that what one can investigate in the lifeless world must be pursued further in the living organism, that one would need merely to take into account the more complex way in which substances interact there, rather than resort to the dubious expedient of the life force. The life force was indeed disposed of as such a dubious expedient of science. In that it was shown how the efficacy of certain substances that would formerly be conceived of only under the influence of the life force is also brought about in the laboratory. And because that is not yet the end of the matter, science had to set itself the high ideal of considering also that combination of substances as exists in the cell of the plant and had to avoid resorting to the dubious expedient of a life force when it came to investigating how substances and forces are active in the organism. So long as people were not in a position to give rise to combinations of substances in the laboratory, it was justified to say that they came about only if the individual substances were influenced by the life force. But since it has become possible, especially through Liebig and Wöhler, after which there has no longer been a belief in the life force, to think of certain substances without the life force, it must since then be said that also the more complicated constructions and interactions in the human organism do not any longer require the help of a special life force. Thus, in the course of the 19th century, science embraced the high ideal that most researchers adhered to, even if there were also, quote, neo-vitalists, close quote, the ideal that became a reality, to recognize such connections between substances as they interact in the living organism 
and without calling upon the help of a nebulous, mystical life-force, which, as all serious scientific research of the nineteenth century has always maintained, serves absolutely no purpose, because it contributes nothing whatsoever to the objective knowledge of nature. Anyone who acknowledges these facts, and above all takes into account the seriousness and intrinsic worthiness that underlie these developments in science, may well protest. Is it really so that a number of people have appeared as so-called spirit researchers who are again reviving the old life force in the form of their etheric body or life body? Is it not a sign of scientific dilettantism? They, these people who know nothing of the ideal of science, may, quote, have their beliefs, close quote. But the scientific researcher himself cannot be taken in by what can well appear to be a mere revival of the idea of the life force. Thus, spiritual science, one can say, works in a dilettantish way by failing to take account of everything that belongs to the most beautiful ideals of modern science. And it merely makes use of the circumstance that science has not yet managed to manufacture in the laboratory certain substances that are to be found in the living organism in order to be able to maintain that a special etheric body or life body is necessary for the engendering of life. One might add that as science develops further, it will eradicate this etheric body or life body from man's being. So long as science has not yet succeeded in the course of its triumphant progress, in showing that there is no such thing as an etheric body and that the combination of the substances of the living organism can also be engendered in a test tube, the theosophists or spiritual researchers can make a song and dance about the etheric body, which is nothing but a resuscitation of the old life force. This is the sort of reproach that might be leveled against dilettantism when it arises. If, now, spiritual science says, regarding sleep life, that the emotions, impulses, and desires that people have and are associated with what is specifically designated as the astral body, and that when a person is overcome by sleep, it leaves the physical and etheric bodies and leads an independent existence, the criticism can be made that it is very easy to speak of an inner soul life if one simplifies everything by referring to this inner soul life without all the difficulties and riddles of which science is aware by saying this is the astral body and all that takes place internally has a connection with it. Again, one can address the advances that science has made and say, what are the great advances that have been made especially in recent decades in order to explain purely scientifically a phenomenon such as sleep life or dream life. It would take a long time if I were to present to you all the efforts of science, which are to be thoroughly regarded with seriousness and respect, to explain sleep life and the life of dreams. It would take a particularly long time, because in recent times a considerable amount of research has come to light which could well be discussed. It will suffice to consider one aspect, 
which can show how difficult it becomes for a serious truth-seeker at the present time to profess allegiance to what can initially appear as a mere assertion. The ego and the astral body of man withdraw from the physical body and etheric body when one goes to sleep. If we gather together a number of different hypotheses and conjectures about sleep life and arrive at an overall explanation of it, we arrive at something of this kind. It is said that in order to give a thorough explanation, all that is needed is to look without prejudice at the phenomena of the human and animal organism. It becomes apparent that waking life consists in that the phenomena of the surrounding world make an impression upon the sense organs, that they stimulate the brain. They exert such stimuli throughout the day. How do they work upon man's brain and nervous system? They do so in such a way that they destroy the substance of which the nervous system consists. What is going on the whole day, according to modern natural science, is that the outward colors, sounds, and so on are penetrating our soul, that is, the life of our brain. By this means, dissimilation processes are brought about, that is to say, processes of destruction. Certain products are deposited So long as these processes are taking place, man is not in a position to bring about the opposite process, that of the rebuilding of his organism. Thus, every time after we wake up, our inner life of soul is to a certain extent destroyed, so that by the time we have become tired, we have arrived at the point where we have destroyed our organism and it can no longer develop an inner soul life. It comes to a halt. One needs only to acknowledge the wearing out of the organic substance, that the organic substance is for a certain time no longer capable of maintaining these inner processes. Outward stimuli no longer have any effect. And the consequence is that the inner organism now begins to develop its nutritional processes, the opposite of the dissimilation or catabolic processes, the processes of assimilation that it now restores the destroyed organic substance and thereby causes nocturnal sleep. Once the organic substance is restored, the inner soul life is also restored, and so waking life can cause fresh stimuli to arise until again tiredness ensues. Thus one is dealing with what we may call a self-regulation or self-renewal of the organism. It may be added that a conscientious seeker after truth who is familiar with the results of modern science will be bound to say, if waking life and sleep life in their rhythmic alternation can be well explained by the self-regulation or self-renewal of the organism, it is not only superfluous but directly harmful if you restrict the progress of such a human science by saying that It is not a matter of self-regulation or self-renewal, but because man has an existence that is independent from it, something goes forth from the organism. Since it can be explained solely through the organism that the alternation between sleep and waking comes about, it is unnecessary and harmful to accept that consciousness is anything special and withdraws from the organism 
in order during the night to engage in life of a particular kind. It will also be pointed out that spiritual science is characterized by extreme dilettantism, in which only such people believe who do not themselves know the path of science to explain the organism purely on its own terms. When the independence of intellectual life is spoken of, when it is said, and it seems a plausible thing to say, that intellectual life is independent, that through our senses we know of the human organism as a physical entity and can investigate it through scientific methods, as we would any other physical process, whereas there is still such a thing as intellectual or mental life, this is something that has often been emphasized, for example by dubois Raymond and also by others who would not readily profess materialism. One can, for instance, consider a conception of the brain. If one were to think of the human brain as so expanded, Leibniz has remarked on this, that one could walk through it, one would only see material processes within it. Intellectual life does, however, have something distinctive about it, and this testifies to the fact that one is dealing here with an intellectual life that is separate from the processes of physical life. Whether this is justified can, however, be shown from what Benedict says. The fact of consciousness is an actual fact of no other order than that of the working of the force of gravity in connection with matter. For we see, for example, the physical matter of a cosmic body, According to physical science, physical matter exerts a gravitational pull, and then there is something that is attracted, for example, by the sun. People formerly spoke of a supersensible aspect to such influences between the sun and the earth or moon. But this is merely equivalent to there being a piece of soft iron and an electrical or magnetic force inside it. And if we envisage the brain and its interplay of ideas, passions, emotions, and so forth, this is similar to the fact that gravity and other forces exert their influence around the material earth. Why then should there be an influence of a different nature if processes are influencing the brain that manifest themselves as does the force of gravity around the material earth? The earth, in its connection with gravity and with whatever else invisibly influences it, is no different from what influences the brain in the form of emotions, ideas, and other processes. How does one have a right, it might well be asked, to speak of an independence of mental life if one does not allow oneself to speak of the force of gravity being exercised also when there is no body for it to attract? And one can say, furthermore, Just as one has no right to speak of a cosmic body exerting a gravitational force in a situation where there is a free cosmic space, so one is not entitled to speak of a distinctive soul quality that is not bound through a brain to material existence. It should be clear to every serious seeker after truth that one should not be allowed to disregard such things through an unscientific fanaticism. If weighty objections can be raised against the spiritual scientific understanding of sleep and waking life, 
and against the independence of consciousness in general, how can someone who takes the scientific methods of the present seriously find a way of agreeing with what is said by spiritual science about repeated earthly lives, about the existence of a core of human nature that transcends death, that has experiences in the time between death and a new birth, and then reappears in a forthcoming physical earthly life. Here an objection is made not only by those who are reliant on scientific facts, but also by those who want themselves to be, in many respects, spiritual scientists, by psychologists, by the present-day investigators of the soul. The question is asked, what is the necessary sign that the human essence continues in existence? The soul researcher of the present can find this quite simply in that human consciousness has a memory of the states that it underwent during life. Continuation, continuity of consciousness, is what psychologists currently take into consideration. They cannot become involved in what does not figure in the consciousness of the human personality, and they will always have to refer to the fact that a person does indeed have a memory of particular circumstances in his life between birth and death, but can find no comparable evidence of the continuing existence of the human essence that may have issued from previous earthly lives. Many serious-minded present-day seekers after truth will also have understandable objections with respect to many other things that have been said in the course of these series of lectures. Thus they may say, you can indeed adduce that certain things in human life seemingly cannot be explained from the events of a single life, that it is reasonable to suppose that a person brings certain dispositions such as talents with him, through birth, and that one can accept that the soul may have existed before entering physical life. But all this remains only a daring hypothesis. For modern research of the soul, everything of this kind continues to be unsatisfactory, insofar as this research pursues a path that seemingly aims quite conscientiously toward an ideal one can characterize what is going on here in the following way. Anyone who considers human life without prejudice, with all the passions that engulf it, its shades of feeling, its inclination toward ideas of whatever kind, will, if he has at least a certain relationship to the standpoint of spiritual science, say, we have as a result of our education achieved many things, but not everything can be explained by this. For we bring, through the portal of birth, something that derives from previous stages of earthly existence. However, the serious-minded scientist may counter. Have we not made a beginning by investigating the early part of childhood, that part of early childhood of which we later have no recollection? A modern naturalist or philosopher will then, perhaps, say, the spirit researcher is wanting to suggest that a gifted genius, for example Feuerbach, brought certain powers with him from his previous life and was thereby enabled to work artistically. But the following discovery has now been made. 
such an artist paints with a quite distinctive mood of color, prefers a particular facial expression, and has other features that lead in a particular direction. If one looks further, one finds that in his early childhood he saw, for example, a bust in his room, and that the particular way that the light always fell on it impressed itself on the soul of the child. This emerges again later, and it comes to be seen, so it is said, that such impressions are deeply influential and significant. It is possible to explain a great deal in this way. Spiritual science wants to lead everything back to past earthly lives, whereas through careful observation and investigation of early childhood, one can perhaps explain everything. One can then make reference to modern science, which shows through the fundamental law of biogenetics how in a pre-birth condition man also reflects the animal forms which it is supposed that the human race has passed through, so that it is therefore justified to show this. In this connection one can say, where has spiritual science referred to something similar? whereby in a single individual life something is repeated that the human individual has undergone in former earthly lives. One would have to be able to ask this if, as a worthy truth-seeker of the present, one is to believe that in this connection a comparable seriousness and honoring of the facts is manifested in spiritual science to what is maintained on the ground of natural science. Thus, what has happened and there is a certain justice in saying this, is that if people have acquired a little scientific knowledge about human life, about the life of animals, and about the planetary life that is accessible to us through astronomy, they can give free rein to their imagination, draw conclusions, and think about all sorts of other worlds that give a strong impression of reality. It is indeed so, that in the case of someone who has no scientific knowledge, an oppositional element will soon manifest itself in that he will project all manner of ideas that do not harmonize with the fruits of scientific research. But anyone familiar with natural science will make it apparent that his ideas merge very nicely with what natural science indicates. Then he will not be contradicted. But if anyone speaks in defense of spiritual science, people may ask whether something of this kind has not been unjustifiably projected through such assertions. Who can vouch for the standpoint that only what is researched by each person should have validity? Thus one needs to get involved for the simple reason that one sees how, in the 19th century, something emerged that also has validity in spiritual science. We have indeed experienced that in the 19th century certain things have been asserted in German and French intellectual circles, which spiritual science maintains. In 1854, a book by Renaud, entitled Terra et Ciel, appeared, and one by Figuer, about what happens with someone after death. There were numerous opponents with a scientific background who said, yes, what is better, that you come up with ideas about a multiplicity of human earthly lives, about a life after death, on the foundation of natural science, 
Or is it better to accept some other equally thought-through hypothesis about such matters? If such objections are made, and if they are not made in a frivolous way but wholly on the basis of an earnest quest for truth, one must say, these are not objections that arise purely from a spirit of opposition, but ones that the human soul must itself make, and all the more so when one sees, on the other hand, how little conscientiousness is exhibited by those wanting to pursue spiritual science when, in quotes, proofs are adduced, that human life is something purely individual, and when it is said that no explanation can be found outside individual life for phenomena such as human conscience and a sense of responsibility, when there is no wish to acknowledge certain predispositions and tendencies from former earthly lives. Many people say, when I take responsibility for something, I must myself have acquired the predisposition for this. Since I have not acquired it in this life, it must have been in a former life. It is also said that human conscience is a phenomenon that proves that an inner voice dwells within us which we cannot derive from our present life and must therefore have come from a previous one. Furthermore, one sees the various children of the same parents. They exhibit quite different spiritual and intellectual qualities. But if everything is supposed to be passed on to the children from the parents by way of heredity, how can one explain such differences as appear even in twins? One should therefore conclude, so people say, that the children of the same parents have different individualities which are not inherited, but must have been brought from a previous earthly life to the present one. The conscientious truth explorer will object. Have you not taken into account that a person's individuality, as he stands before us, arises from a mixture of the fatherly and motherly element, and the mixture must therefore be different with the individual children? Even in the case of twins, would the individualities not have to be different because of these different mixtures, if one is explaining them purely from heredity? Such an objection is not far-fetched but is one that arises directly from the matter at hand. If one takes everything into account, one finds it absolutely understandable that those who always demand a science that can be, in quotes, verified, do not accept spiritual science, because it cannot be verified. And if one considers that such opponents are making a significant point, one grasps what they are saying. It can be said of them that, in addition to the critical spirit of our time, something different is living in them. This critical spirit is definitely present. And if spiritual science says something, it immediately provokes opponents who are not only irritated logically, but also morally outraged that such theories are expressed. Such opponents are called forth, and criticism is something that we see springing up everywhere. And because, with its ideas, spiritual science introduces a somewhat shocking element into the fabric of our time, such criticism is perfectly understandable. But, alongside a critical spirit, there also exists in our time a certain gullibility, the tendency to be swept along behind anyone 
provided that there is something in what he asserts that is derived from spiritual science. The longing to receive things into which one also has insight is just as little in evidence as the critical spirit and gullibility are strongly present. Thus we see that through gullibility, through a credulous public audience that accepts everything on authority, that accepts all manner of things from spiritual science, encouragement is given to precisely what true, serious spiritual research is accused of, namely charlatanism. It is an invitation to charlatanism when people accept things in a credulous way. And it is a great temptation for someone if every conceivable thing that he says is believed, if he is relieved of the difficulty of properly justifying these things before the forum of science, before the forum of the time spirit. Even in our time, what is spoken of here is far too widespread. We see how gullibility, how the crassest superstition is rampant. Thus there are probably no two other things in the world that are so closely related than are spiritual science and charlatanism. If one cannot distinguish the two paths, if one accepts everything purely on a blind belief in authority, just as by its very nature much must be taken on authority, as is often the case at present, one invites what is rightly criticized by those who are serious in their pursuit of truth, charlatanism, which is so closely linked with spiritual science. One can find it understandable if someone who is not in a position to distinguish a charlatan from a spirit researcher objects that it is all charlatanism. There is no speedier transition than to the moral and religious domain. We can characterize the objections that occur in this realm more quickly because they are easier to understand. One can indeed see that what must necessarily be the most intimate concern of the human soul, what a person believes in, what he subjectively considers to be true, is blown up into a would-be science. And one can register the following objection to the spiritual scientist. If you present this as your belief, we shall leave you in peace. But if you were to make what you present as a teaching from the higher worlds applicable to other people, this is contrary to the nature and character of how a person's inner being relates to the spiritual worlds, to the religious life as a whole. If one also seeks to demonstrate the fruits in this connection, one can say, look at those in spiritual scientific circles who have, for example, come to be convinced of the idea of repeated earthly lives. One can see in them how their whole moral conception of the world has been led by a spiritual scientific outlook into the crassest egotism. And then it becomes possible to contrast what arises out of spiritual science with the materialism of the 19th century by saying, there have been many people who have with their spirit risen above purely material processes and have come to say, I see my higher morality not in laying claim after my death to a spiritual world 
where I can be received and continue to live. And if I do something of a moral nature, I do it without hope of a spiritual world, but because I see it as my duty, because I gladly sacrifice what I see as my own personal benefit. There have been many for whom the morality of immortality is purely egotistical. This morality appeared to them to be far less good than that which lets everything that is done pass over into the general life of the cosmos. In contrast to this is the morality of those who say it would be meaningless if what they do were not to be balanced out in ensuing earthly lives. This karmic law, the opponents of spiritual science can say, favors only human egotism in complete contrast to those who acknowledge that they will have many lives in the future. So what do I now need to become a decent human being? I have many lives before me, and although I may continue to be stupid at present, I can still become clever and skilled in subsequent lives. Thus it might be said that repeated earthly lives invite one to lead a comfortable and effortless life. According to this view, the idea of repeated earthly lives makes it apparent that the egotism that seeks to preserve one's ego is very far removed from selfless morality. An objection to be considered is one that Friedrich Schlegel made against the way that the Indians interpreted the idea of repeated earthly lives. The view of the life of the human essence that rushes from incarnation to incarnation leads to man being estranged from active, direct engagement in reality and losing interest in everything that he should be developing. A certain unworldly specialness can easily be observed in those who involve themselves with spiritual science. A certain spiritual egotism, a certain unworldly teaching is thereby cultivated. Indeed, it comes to manifestation when such people say, When I have been studying spiritual science for a certain time, I lose interest in what was previously dear to me. This is something that often happens, and it shows that there is something to be said for the counter-suggestion that people should work in the world to which they have been assigned. It is a point to be taken seriously, that spiritual science should not alienate people from the immediate realities of life or make them into oddities who wander all over the place. And now, for the religious life. What is the fairest blossom, the most magnificent flowering of this religious life? It lies in the devotion, the selfless devotion of the human individuality that transcends human existence. The truly religious mood is engendered by the soul's willingness to lose or dedicate itself to a deity beyond human comprehension. Now spiritual science comes and explains to man that a divine spark is within him which comes to expression only in a small way in one earthly life. But as it is developed and achieves an ever greater degree of perfection, the God in man becomes ever stronger and stronger. This is to endow the self with godliness instead of a selfless devotion to a transcendent deity. Yes, one can object with a certain entitlement if, from a serious religious standpoint, one takes the view 
that through becoming immersed in one's own divine nature as it comes to realization through a series of incarnations, the true religious mood can be destroyed, just as life can also be destroyed in love. If a person does not feel himself to be motivated by a sense of loving devotion, but if he thinks that in a later earthly life everything will be balanced out, he loves only the impending compensation. And the religious person can say, The religious life is, in the worldview of spiritual science, founded upon the egotistical view that man has no God outside himself, but only within himself. And the objection is justified. What arrogance, pride, and self-adulation can come to be established within the human soul? Those who make such objections do not need to embellish them further. But one can see how faithful adherents of spiritual science can come to such an arrogance and repeatedly fall prey to self-adulation. It is therefore the case that we in the West find such a repugnance toward the existence of a human essence before birth. One should not take lightly an objection that a serious truth-seeker may make against the idea of repeated earthly lives in contrast to that of relationships based on inheritance. One objection that I shall read, and I shall not speak about it since this would detract from its force, is that of Jakob Froschammer, who may be regarded as one of those people who have a great problem with accepting the idea of a pre-existence of the soul. Quote, it is not possible to regard the human soul as the being of God or as part of God's being, not so much because of a Thomistic concern about the oneness of God, since souls could reside in him as fleeting elements without inflicting injury upon his oneness, but rather because of the personal consciousness and testimony of the human soul itself, which can regard neither itself nor the world as the direct expression of divine perfection or as the realization of the idea of God. As deriving from God, it can serve merely as a product or work of divine imagination. For the human soul must, like the world itself, in this case indeed come from divine power and influence, since nothing can come into being out of pure nothingness. But this power and influence of God must, as a model for all creation, also work formatively in its realization and continuing existence. Thus, as a formative power, not only of a formal, but also a real kind, therefore, as imagination, that is, as a sustaining power or potential that continues to work and be creative imminently in the world, hence as a world imagination, as has already been discussed. As for the doctrine of the pre-existence of souls, souls that are regarded either as eternal or as created in time, but at the beginning and collectively at the same time, which, as has been observed, has again been put forward and is considered to be pertinent to a solution for all manner of psychological problems, this is connected with the teaching of the transmigration and incarnation of souls in earthly bodies. According to this view, therefore, 
There takes place through the procreation of the parents neither a direct divine creation of souls nor a creative engendering of new human natures in body and soul by the parents, but a kind of new connection of the soul with the body, thus a kind of becoming flesh or an immersing of the soul in the body, at least to a partial extent, so that it is partly embraced by and bound up with the body and partly extends above it and maintains a certain independence as a spirit, but nevertheless cannot detach itself from it until death breaks the connection and brings liberation and release for the soul, at least from this connection. The spirit of a human being would then in its relation to the body be like the poor souls in purgatory, as they are usually portrayed in votive tablets by bungling artists, as bodies that are half-immersed in glowing flames, but with the upper part as souls protruding and gesticulating. Just think what a position and significance would be ascribed in this view to the opposite sexes, the generic nature of mankind, marriage and the relationship of parents to their children. The contrast between the sexes would become a mere incarceration, marriage an institution for fulfilling this wonderful task. Parents would be the mere vehicle for taking hold of and imprisoning children's souls with children themselves being indebted to the parents for this miserable, wearisome imprisonment, while having nothing further to do with them. Everything that is linked to this state of affairs is based on a miserable deception. Close quote. Steiner again. If one is a fanatical spirit researcher, such a litany may elicit a smile but fanaticism should be far removed from spiritual science. Its task is to understand and really tolerate what the soul has to cope with. For this reason, this introductory lecture was conceived not as a foundation, in quotes, but as a, in quotes, refutation of spiritual scientific research. But what will be presented in the next lecture? Quote, on what foundation is spiritual science based, close quote, will be able to stand all the more firmly if we can ourselves make the objections that can justifiably be made. As one may well imagine, I do not really want to refute spiritual science. I have been able to present here only a small number of objections. Broad outlines of many others could be given. To some extent this can be done over the coming weeks, and the refutations of these will then follow directly. But one can see from everything that is being presented how through the receiving of spiritual scientific research one is being inwardly summoned to a battlefield, as it is not merely a question of speaking about things, such as repeated earthly lives, man's passage through a spiritual world, and so on, but all sorts of counter-arguments also emerge from the dark depths of the soul. It is good if someone who quietly concerns himself with spiritual research is also familiar with these counter-arguments. He will then be able to apply the right tolerance to opponents. It can never be the way of the spirit researcher simply to concern himself with spiritual science or to be blind to or laugh at objections made by opponents. 
that this is not a good way to proceed can be seen from a particular instance in the 19th century which I should like to recount. In the year 1869 there appeared the quote, title Philosophy of the Unconscious by Edward von Hartmann. Even though one might not agree with it, one can say that it represented a good attempt to reach beyond sense perception. Thus Edward von Hartmann felt obliged to take issue with much that had been disseminated at that time as an ideal of science, especially with what derived from the growing fascination with Darwinism. Thus we find much in the title Philosophy of the Unconscious with respect to Darwinism that continues to have relevance. But where those who, from the standpoint of Darwinism, could not approve of this book, agreed with one another, was that they rejected Edward von Hartmann as someone who had not familiarized himself with what followed from modern science. A great flood of dissenting opinions appeared. These dissenting opinions did, of course, include some of sheer stupidity. But some were the work of real experts in the field, such as Ernst Haeckel, the zoologist Oskar Schmidt, and others. Among these dissenting statements and articles was one entitled The Unconscious from the Standpoint of Physiology and the Theory of Evolution by an author who did not give his name. In the essay in question, compelling reasons were given why many things in the title Philosophy of the Unconscious were not maintainable and why its author had shown that in the field of natural science he was no more than a dilettante. Many people were utterly astounded at the degree of insight that this anonymous person revealed in this essay, and Oskar Schmidt, who was at the time at Jena University, thought it was the best thing that could be said from the standpoint of natural science against the philosophy of the unconscious. Many people said, he is speaking for us, for he is one of ours. And Ernst Haeckel said that he himself could write nothing better against the philosophy of the unconscious. Thus it was no wonder that the first edition of this essay, titled The Unconscious, from the standpoint of physiology and the theory of evolution, was soon out of print. A second edition appeared, and now the author revealed his name. It was Edward von Hartmann. This silenced many of the voices who had previously said, He is speaking for us, he is one of ours. But the remarkable thing had happened, that a person had shown that he knew everything that his most serious opponents could say against him. This does indeed prove that no credence should be given to the idea that something can be said against a view of the world that the person who advocates it would not himself have been able to express. For spiritual science, this is indeed a matter of considerable importance. Now, I have not been able to say everything today that I might have said, but spiritual science must know what objections it is open to, and it can only be wished that many of those who believe they have found deep scientific reasons with which to refute spiritual science might sometimes be able to consider how much better the one who is the butt of the objections knows the matter at hand than the person who is doing the objecting. So is it with a conscientious spirit researcher. He can, of course, not bore his audience by always also presenting counter-arguments. But if something is said on behalf of spiritual science 
and if many opponents come forward with their views, they should first ask themselves whether what they are bringing could not have been better said by the person speaking on behalf of spiritual science. The task of the next lecture will be to pose the question, what is the right relationship of the soul to the counter-arguments that it may itself engender from the depths of its being? Should it indeed be so, that since so many objections can be made against spiritual science, people have to regard it in the way that Goethe, in a somewhat exaggerated way, lets his Faust say, quote, Could I but banish magic from my path? Close quote. Are the counter-arguments of spiritual science equivalent in nature to Faust's counter-arguments against magic? Are they of such a nature that a philosopher such as Geoffroy de Saint-Hilaire is right when he says, With regard to observation of the world, only the following is worthy of consideration. We see that man is in many respects weak. Why should we not admit this weakness? And why should it not be a strength to come to terms with one's weakness? People are only too ready to confess their weakness with respect to wind and weather, to volcanic eruptions and events of the elemental world. They have no problem with admitting that they are weak with regard to what nature imposes upon them. When they sow their seeds in the earth and the unfavorability of the weather does not allow them to ripen and causes all their industry to result in famine. If people often have to take their weaknesses to heart, why should they not say out of sheer honesty, the spirit can in many respects go beyond itself, but it is too weak and limited and cannot accomplish anything beyond what nature imposes upon them. So they cannot recognize anything beyond what lives in us by virtue of our nature. We must resign ourselves to it. If the reasons that have now been cited were so weighty that the next lecture could not be given, there would be no possibility other than such an attitude of resignation, which not only Geoffroy de Saint Hilaire, but many others feel out of a sincere, truth-loving attitude of soul and believe they must represent outwardly that man cannot gain access to a spiritual world because the counter-arguments do not spring from a spirit of opposition but from the nature of things itself. The debate about the nature and value of the counter-arguments of spiritual science is not merely a theoretical fact but something that must emerge from the battlefield of the soul, where conflicting opinions constitute a battle that is more or less justified, and where one can recognize only through hard struggles which of the reasons advocated there can be victorious. If one openly and without prejudice weighs up the inner battle of the soul and can say what speaks for and against a recognition of the spiritual world, one will not be a fanatical representative of this or that abstract or arbitrarily conceived principle, but someone who recognizes the principle that a quiet conviction rests on the basis of those foundations that can only achieve validity after and not before they have eliminated their counter-arguments within one's own soul. If the seeker after truth 
searches for his conviction in this way. He may say to himself that he may confidently approach the development of spiritual life in the future, for it is true what the serious truth-seeker has said. What is untrue, and however often it may be put forward, will be rejected by humanity's evolving aspiration for truth. But what is true and had to struggle for its existence against dissenting arguments, as we always see with regard to events and processes in world history, finds its path in human evolution in the quite particular way that one can stand before this development of truth over the centuries and millennia and can say, however many obscuring impressions, that is, prejudices and opposition, may rise up, the truth always finds cracks and crevices whereby it can assert itself for the blessing, advancement, and benefit of mankind. The end of Lecture 1